Welcome to the Abbey Talks podcast series with myself, Lisa Farley, coordinator of the talk series here at the Abbey. Two theatre makers, David Horne and Esau Golden, both alike in dignity, sat down with me to talk through their production of Class, which is currently enjoying a sold-out run on the Peacock stage. In this podcast, which is one of two, David Horne talked with me about his experience of the education system, his collaboration with writer and director Esau Golden, and the shocking truth when the bad guy wins. Enjoy this podcast. Welcome to the Abbey Talks podcast series, David Horan. Thank you. Thank, lovely to be here. What were your report cards like in primary school? Uh, they were pretty good. Yeah, I was a bit of a pet and a swat. Uh, I'd said in an earlier thing that I once uh, even made the mistake of calling my teacher Mammy, which was the, one of the most embarrassing days of first class. I was seven. I wasn't even five or six. I did have a, one funny experience, which was that I was once kept out of school because my little sister was sick and I had to mind her. Um, and so I was taken out of school and then my mom gave me a note because you always have to come in with a note if you've been absent. Um, and I didn't know that my mom had lied and said I was sick in the note. And uh, it was um, my second class teacher. It was a bit of an ogre. Um, and I went up and said I couldn't come. I, as I handed her the note, I said I couldn't come in. I was looking after my little sister. And uh, in some way I got given out to big time. And then I came home and told my mum she, and uh, she gave out to me again for telling the truth. Um, that is very confusing. Yeah, very confusing. Who helped you with your homework? Yeah, my mum and dad both would have. Um, I can remember my dad having uh, captions of words and all the rest of teaching me to read. And then I had an older sister who would play school with me. So she would teach me how to do things two years before I got there. So school uh, on the academic side was I tended to be uh, to have a head start so yeah I'm I'm way more fortunate than most of the characters in this play so what was your most abiding memory of primary school um I would have been aware of certain differences I loved football you'd normally get you know into tr- uh, into trouble get uh, beaten up or bullied if you were really good in my school uh, but I remember one bully actually turns to me going how come you're good at maths and football like as if that wasn't you know possible and not only that but I so I played for the local team and I remember I was like 14 or 15 and one of my friends from my state came to join my team and when we got down there he said what way are you talking and it turned out that I'd never known because I played for my team since the age of six but that I spoke with a different accent at football than the one I did at home and I hadn't even been aware of it so maybe on some level I've grown up with the issues of class in my life. I was going to ask you about being a rebel or a conformist, but uh, what were you like in secondary school then? Is you a football player? In, yeah, no, in every other way I was a rebel. I did the musicals and the plays. Is and, that being a rebel? Uh, <laughs> it's the, um, no, it's being the Holden Caulfield rebel. I'm, I'm deep and profound and uh, I'm not going to play the points game. So I'm being a rebel with the posh kids, but I'm not being a rebel rebel. I'm not getting into trouble and suspended, no. Okay. Um, was there an influential teacher that put a shape on you? Yes, there was. There was an English teacher called Mr. Doherty, or Dots, and uh, he showed us the movie Platoon. We were 14 or something, so Platoon was a cool thing to spend your English class doing. Um, but, you know... Um, and what was the purpose there. of it? Uh, it was all those things of character as function of ideas. Um, so Willem Dafoe uh, believed in the individual above the communal. Um, uh, Tom Beresford's character was soldier's machine. They were at war with each other. I was that combined with my I, 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 my school did a Amadeus play, which was a big uh, had a big effect on me because when I went to see it, uh, it was the older guys were doing it. Um, the bad guy won, and that affected me badly. The bad guy wins in Platoon as well, and then he was the one I mentioned, Catcher in the Rye, Dots, uh, Mr. Artie, 
uh, took a whole 45 minutes to explain to us how Holden Caulfield said he wanted um, intellectual conversation but when he got finally got with his good mate he just asked about girls and who he'd slept with because what he really wanted was intimate conversation and a sense of intimacy with someone and when I realised oh my god he said one thing but he wanted another and at no point did the writer tell us that we just have to infer that from what we know about people I am um, my mind was blown I was going to ask you what what was the first play you saw and what was the first play that made an impression on you was it the Emma days yeah yeah by a mile I was sick for two days afterwards now my mom did do um, the local drama group in Swords and uh, I was brought there when I was really young um, and I had no clue what was going on and I didn't like it at all I had to watch my mom kiss another man she was in Lovers Losers by Brian Friel the lesser known uh, one act play and uh, there was another one she was in where she was sacrificed um, it was called After Midnight Before Dawn and I asked her actually recently I said what age was I when I saw that and I apparently was seven um, so I hadn't a clue what was going on but it was it was kind of like a Salem Witches thing and, and, and she was sacrificed before the end of a one act play I, I'm all in favour of the, drum, uh, the amateur dramatic movement I think they're great fun um, so it wasn't a huge leap then that you went into theatre? Well, funnily, she's definitely the performer and had a huge influence, but um, there's, there was no theatrical background whatsoever beyond that. And uh, I I think probably early on felt I needed permission somehow to be part of, to pursue a theatrical career um, and not do a muggle job, let's say. And that just is a feeling that just eventually went away rather than... Um, feeling like at any point I made sense that I uh, go into theatre. How do you so then? How do you begin that? Do you, what was your what was your first choice in the CAO form? Because I'm always fascinated by people's choices. Because I don't think we were hugely informed back then about I suppose what was out there for if you did want to pursue a theatrical career of sorts. I went to the Trinity Drama Open Day. Um, and the reason I went was because of the school plays. So I, by the time I got to fifth year and I was doing a school play, we didn't do Amadeus, we did Peter Pan. Um, but by the time I got there, I did know the drama was an option. Um, I didn't. Uh, I was more doing drama t- for the social life, and I picked drama at Trinity with English because I wanted to study, and I put it top of my CAO because I knew you had to to get in. But I thought it was. Um, the reason I did it was that you'd have to do an interview in advance and then I wouldn't need points, I thought, which wasn't the case at all. Um, uh, but I was lucky enough to get in. But it was only when I got to th- uh, to the Theatre Studies course in Trinity that I realised that I loved it. This isn't a flippant question, but did you learn anything at, say, Drama College? A lot of particularly actors would say that they, they, uh, they learned on the job. Yeah, I definitely did. Yeah, well, and but I will say I probably learned as much in players where you're just trying out and putting on plays and doing every single job that's going and, you know, volunteering to be front of house or to operate the lights as much as putting on plays and directing and writing them. But I also discovered really quickly that I was a self-conscious actor there compared to others. And that's uh, when the directing took hold. So you went in with the view to that you you were going to become an actor. You were that's where you thought your, your strength lay. No, I thought I was still going to be a writer. I, d- I didn't really know what I was doing if, uh, signing up for the theatre studies course at all. I didn't really, even though I'd done the plays in, co- in secondary school, um, I didn't really uh, know what that was. Um, it was only Brian Singleton's uh, theatre practice class in first year that where things started to open up. Uh, I I tell some of my students I did do, um, you know, a teenager improvisation acting class on a Saturday afternoon. 
and the teacher would have her favorites and would say what Darren did there was very good or what Ashling did there was very good because it told us this that and the other and I only realize now as older that she should have been saying the reason Darren knew to do that thing was because um, that that would be teaching us how to act but instead it turned out what she was teaching me was directing so when I got to university and uh, and started to direct I began to realize I understood some things just had a small um, head start which helped. So from Trinity uh, am I right in thinking then you went over to Jack Lecoq and what were the steps that led you to there? I was assistant directing uh, in the big houses I would get bursaries to either assist at the gate or at the abbey um, and at the same time I was directing in the independent and at the time it was the crypt was probably places like the new theatre and theatre upstairs the crypt was that place then that space where young people could practice um, and so I was doing work that I really believed in and really enjoyed and then I was sort of learning my craft from in the mentorship kind of way and it was an amazing year here uh, a year and a half here in fact uh, just leading up to the centenary um, so I was hearing all the plans for the centenary and I was part of some productions that were just astonishing like The Wild Duck uh, with Laszlo Marton and some others that were more troubled um, and as a uh, staff director is, was the title then was really a trainee director um, there was uh, quite a few remounts that I would have had to um, do understudy rehearsals for or help with um, get-ins and things like that anyway I started my own work started to bang up against things that I wanted to do that I could see uh, that the work needed but I didn't quite have the tools to do it um, and there was one time I was doing a show that involved a character having to play an actor having to play multiple characters and I was lucky enough to get Michael Murphy the great Michael Murphy to come in and see a rehearsal and his feedback was I'm going to tell you stuff you already know but and then he started to list off a few things and I didn't already know them um, and it sort of opened my eyes that there was a whole other bag of skills that I hadn't had a chance to look at yet um, I suppose university can still be text-based and very ideas-based, uh, but in terms of the practical uh, applications of acting and movement, um, those sort of things uh, were still uh, shrouded in mystery for me. So yeah, I took myself away to Lecoq for a year and I was lucky enough to get support from the Arts Council, probably on the back of one or two um, of the independent plays that I produced. Am I right in thinking that while you were over there that they hadn't they don't distinguish whether you're um, a director or an actor in, in that year. It's a year, is it? Over it can be two years. Uh, the first year is called the principles of movement. And then in the second year, you apply those. So at the end of the first year, you have to tell them if you want to do a second year. And usually fewer get through. But uh, performers want to do the second year as a director. Aaron Mnuchin, um was one of my... Uh, idols as a theatre director and she only did one year so uh, I was always only planning to do one year but yeah th at the end of the year you get a one-on-one -on -one, um, with the head of the course uh, and she asked me why didn't you want to do the second year I'm um, having given me feedback on the entire year and I said well because I'm a director and then her face sort of fell in a way and she went ah oh, you know I see and she was French um, and uh, I suddenly realized didn't did you not know I was a director and she, she said, no, we don't get to see the CVs. They Only the admissions look at the CVs and then we take you all and we meet you through the work. And I suddenly had to think back through nine months of me being horrendous on the rehearsal room floor. And the, um, and well, which obviously was not so horrendous. You know, well, I don't, I, I think she wanted to know why I wasn't looking to go to second year. I'm not sure I would have got through to second year at all, at all, uh, because uh, it was a wonderful experience though. Oh, um, I learned so much, but there were three or four months where I was, astounded because I was older than a lot of the students you have to be 21 to go but I was like 25 um, 
and I'd you know felt I had some experience going and but about three months in I did not know why they were asking us to do things I was doing my best um, but I found it very difficult um, and very hard in the ego to come in every day and be told you're wrong or, um, so uh, I'm very sensitive now I teach at the Lear and I'm very sensitive to the the difficulties that come with training take me back to when and how class began what was the initial spark it seems to be a labor of love there must have been something that allowed myself and Esau to continue at it for the through it was more than three years in, in its genesis uh, from the form it's in now um, uh, we both knew we wanted to say something about class and about how Irish societies run and we had this in that we had both read a book by Malcolm Gladwell very well known Malcolm Gladwell but um, a book one of his books called The Outliers uh, has a paragraph which talks about entitlement um, talks about people's natural relationships to authority and how they feel entitled to advocate for themselves so this uh, chapter has lots of different instances of um, of how that works one of them being that at the time Asian airlines were suffering way worse with plane crashes and it turned out because they respect authority so much there was lots of instances of the co-pilot not warning the pilot properly and that they eventually fixed the problem by making the more senior person the co-pilot um, whereas in America where people don't respect authority to the same degree the least amount of airplane crashes which was funny but we saw that as, an, as a way into discussing uh, the reality on the ground for um, status mobility in Ireland let's say uh, which is all so highfalutin and such big ideas and so cerebral that uh, um, it took us we didn't know we were going to write a linear play with a linear story at one point we th we looked at dramatising those cockpit moments um, uh, we had all sorts of things about uh, how the unconscious brain responds to stimulus and uh, in early workshops that we did do with actors um, but we came across this idea of um, a teacher breaking the news so we we'd used schools and we'd used libraries as two places where there's an authority figure but one that's kind of gentle and with and uh, that's where we went hunting and then we came across the idea of um, breaking um, breaking the news that somebody has a learning difficulty uh, and if it if it's not heard the right way that there might be interesting um, fallout from that so were you aware of the sensitivities involved in being one of two middle-class people writing about working-class issues, say? Or did, I mean, is that...? Yeah, no. We def we were really aware of it. Um, we thought about writing ourselves into it. Um, before we had a story, let's say, we thought we might have to excuse ourselves in some way for uh, trying to. But uh, in the end, we just worked really hard to get to know our characters. Um, and we have had experiences and we've worked with people from different backgrounds um, and we've worked in different places. So we were able to fall back on that. And then we also gave the script. Uh, but we, what we would do is probably write what we felt the story needed and then check on the other side if we were be being correct in terms of the reality of the thing. But in the end, yeah, at least three teachers um, went through the script with us at different points um, and double checked our facts, let's say. I will get back to the collaboration between you and Esau Golden, but it was because, you know, there's the whole title of it is, and is, is, is laden with meaning. Was it a hard sell? I think it was. it was. Certainly we tried to sell the idea in lots of places and we thought it was a really exciting idea. So maybe we weren't as aware that it didn't come off the page as excitingly to others that 
other people couldn't see where the fun was in the idea. But we knew that the parent-teacher meeting was this really strange version of funny, that there's something really uh, new and fresh about the humour as the audience is so well placed to be able to see why these people aren't communicating to each other. And we knew that happens in the first 10 minutes of the play. And weirdly to me, I still think that's where the genius of the play is, even though it took so long to figure out the, the, we probably had to write everything else loads in order to make it clear to the audience everything that we saw in that very initial transaction um, but that's a very funny one and it turns out to be very heartbreaking and to have the entire problem in it uh, yeah so uh, that said um, Willie White the first time he heard the pitch was one of the few people who instantly w was interested and I wonder is it that he was an, a parent himself um, or what it was but he right from the off seemed to be interested in it and we then just struggled to actually secure the funding after that but it could never have happened without at least one of the gatekeepers saying no let's go for this so you're a writer director you know you're self-sufficient kind of run your own theater company what's the significance of having the of having class here at the abbey well we think it's a national story um, and w therefore we wanted to be seen on in that level um, we wanted to be seen by as many people as well as we possibly can get to see it. And uh, so if one of the major companies now uh, hadn't said, yes, this is important, it's very hard to tell anybody else it is. Um, and now it was fabulous that the Dublin Theatre Festival took it and that it was embraced so well there. Uh, but for us, this is a beautiful follow on and it's a bit of a dream, actually. OK, so talk to me about your collaboration with Isol Golden, the co-director, writer and fellow Beauty's Cafe cohort. How do you negotiate that division of work? Um, well, there is no division of work. We both do all the work together um, and uh, sometimes apart. But uh, we uh, initially uh, in the early drafts, we wrote every word in the same room. And uh, then at a certain point, we realized that we needed to give ourselves a bit more artistic freedom uh, for accidents and surprises. So about a year and a half ago, we decided to write drafts apart and then uh, pass them back and forth. We we each initially wrote a separate draft, uh, though we both knew what the issues were with the previous one, so there would have been things that were similar about them, uh, and that allowed for a little more scope for surprise. Um, and and we fixed a few things that way, and then eventually we came back together, and you just argue it out, which is better. What's, uh, why is that line better than that one, or why is that action better than another? Um, so it means that the thing does probably get more interrogated um, at a certain level. But I assume, um, and I know, like nothing ever left uh, Brian Friel's desk without full interrogation. So, um, but yeah, there's no division of labour, let's say. Well, then whose vision wins out? Uh, it, it's a singular vision between you then. It is uncanny because I've told you where my experiences for class and where that and my background and, and how that's so important to me. I bet you Isolt has her own stories, but we both clearly we always agreed on what we wanted to say. Um, now, we've had a 15 year uh, collaboration at this point. Isolt initially was an actor and I was a director and we set up a company together with uh, Carmel Stevens and we devised and adapted work for years and then after that we um, got commissioned to write screenplays um, so we've been together and we've and our processes have grown up together I don't know if that's why but our visions were uncannily similar I can't get my head around I suppose that you go off to separate rooms and then you come back and there isn't you, you, I suppose you have a skeletal storyline no there's not well certainly when we wrote those two separate drafts w the, 
there would have definitely been things in my draft and I'm sure Isolt found awful and, and there were things that in her draft that I would not have liked either but we were both then able to give feedback on each other's draft and we would agree with each other oh yes that is weak oh yes that shouldn't be there oh right is that not working oh okay well the reason I thought I'd do that is for this reason oh that's a good reason but that's not the way to do it and then we would work out well what is the way to do it that doesn't you know um, because that makes the character seem that way does it oh I didn't expect that I didn't mean it to well if it does then let's change it so in ev eventually you just argue it out because at the end of the day we knew that we wanted to be as sympathetic to all of the characters um, and that if at any point you felt we were siding too much with one then there was no drama left and I suppose we also probably had a mission at that that we wanted to write a play that was as rigorous and as tested and as sophisticated and as layered as it could possibly be. Um, a play that kept on peeling um, and a play where the meaningfulness of it kept gathering in a way that you couldn't get in front of, in a way where the audience couldn't know where, where, they, where they were going. So at one point, Stephen Jones, who's so wonderful in it, um, in rehearsals, he said, am I right in thinking the first half hour should almost feel like a sitcom? Um, and that's not entirely true, but there's something right in it in that we want the audience to fall in and think they're at one type of play and then slowly begin to see the meaningfulness of what they're watching and realize, oh, there's more going on here. And there's and to have and then, of course, maybe have their allegiances shift between who's right and who's wrong. Um, because at the end of the day, there is no right answer. Th this problem that we're writing about is we're, we're really just trying to make people feel the problem. Because I don't know if it's drama's job to have answers. We, we don't have any. But what we can do is make people really feel why it's so hard and what that makes people feel. And then if they have, a, hopefully if they feel that, if, if there's that empathy in the world, then maybe we can make changes or, or even make no changes, just be aware of it. Um, but that was what we were trying to do. See, I would have known you for decades now as a director so you mentioned you were were you always writing when did when did the writing start it started in those sort of devising adapting kind of ways um i did write plays of my own in college um and uh, but um so i suppose on one level maybe i'm a director who who likes to write um i'm better at directing than i am at writing or certainly i i um you know I am. Uh, but what that also meant was that I was really interested in new writing um, and in other writers. Uh, I think also maybe when you're in your 20s, you're very interested in form um, and what the medium can do. And I still am. And I still think every work of art should be looking to expand its form. And that's one of the brilliant things about theatre is formally it's so different every time. Um, but uh, I was happy, therefore, in, those, in my 20s to not necessarily have to say anything yet if I was always very impressed with new writers other writers who had something to say and I would go yes you are right that is an interesting thing to say let's try and get inside that and, and make that work um, and uh, and so I and I still absolutely want to do that for so much for so much writing there's so much good writing that uh, is not yet um, hitting our uh, stages as complete as they should um, and there's so many voices that are not there um, and there's so many stories to tell um, and I suppose possibly in the age of verbatim theatre and post-dramatic work, uh, all of which I think is fascinating and stretching the form in fantastic ways, uh, it's potentially time for the writing to stand up and be as sophisticated and uh, be as engaged and, and to be as thorough. 
how do you know what you're doing is any good? Is it, is it testing it on an audience? Is it testing it on your collaborator? Uh, on one level, you don't. And if you think you know, then you're going to probably get a land fairly quickly. Um, but we definitely did do um, rehearsed readings to see what was reading and listened really carefully to the feedback. Uh, not because all the feedback would, would necessarily tell you exactly what was wrong, but they tell you something was wrong. And then it's up to you to uh, put it together. Um, I suppose... Uh, so yes, test and and then after that, you just have to say, "Am I interested? Does this engage me?" Um, and uh, if and as you develop, you have to trust. Like as a director, you your job is to be that first most difficult audience member, um, and and so you pursue it that way. But there was a moment in this which I found interesting in rehearsals, where I was watching uh, Sarah Morris, uh, Will O'Connell, and Stephen Jones performing a scene that I had written, so I knew every word of it. And I was watching it going, I'm not quite sure what's about to happen. And then I thought, OK, that must be good. How? And I was quite surprised by that feeling. I thought if I'm engrossed and not sure what's about to happen, then something very right is happening. What is it that you want a play to do? What's uh, what's a play for? Doubt all plays are for or doing the same thing. But play, a lot of them are an act of empathy. Um, they are trying to describe our um, life as somebody feels it's true. Uh, it's trying to share someone's view of the world um, and in a way that's generous and hopefully connects with people's own lived experiences um, and therefore it's that shared connection that shared imagination that shared ability to empathise for something or someone who may have never even existed um, creating that sort of communal event I think changes something so on a simpler level, it's to entertain, it's to engross, it's to surprise, it's to delight, it's to provoke, it's to make me feel sick for two days because I didn't know the bad guy could win um, and make me question why um, the world is unfair and all of those sort of things. Mm-hmm.